As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. The Mystery of the Eucharist. A talk by Father Anthony Mary Pendergast at the Immaculata Mission School, 2019. Just to begin, to say that, you know, the beautiful gift we have of the Eucharist, this gift given to the Church, uh, and today, sadly, you know, many people, many Catholics, are walking away, walking away in droves, to things like New Age, to many different things, uh, to solve their problems. And we have our Lord in the Eucharist, truly present as he is in heaven under a different mode of existence, under the sacramental mode of existence, but truly present. You know, the sacramental mode of existence that God has created in order to be with us. He was with us. He's not, I must tell you, he's not physically in the uh, Blessed Sacrament. He is bodily present in the Blessed Sacrament. He was physically present as he walked upon the earth. You could shake hands to him and uh, give him a hug. Hug. (laughs) But he is bodily present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. That's not physically, it's sacramentally, under the sacramental mode of existence. I just don't want to confuse you, so I'll stop. So, just to say, you know, as we begin to reflect on the Eucharist, we carry a joy in our heart. We have been at Holy Mass today. Uh, All of us, probably, received our Lord within us. What an awesome thing. What an awesome thing, what happened today when we were at Holy Mass. And again, uh, it makes us joyful, and it also carries for us a certain sorrow, the fact that our brothers and sisters, our loved ones, are walking away to some other things. Where are they going? They're walking away, running away to Buddha, to the Hindu gods, to all these different things. And none of them have died for us. Jesus has died, shed his blood on the cross out of love for us. And he's present in the Eucharist. And then also, you know, Catholics, today we have to state things a little bit as they are. You know, I heard a conversation between a Mormon and a Catholic. And the Mormon said to the Catholic, well, I don't believe in the Eucharist because the Catholics don't believe in the Eucharist. And he said, why? The Catholic, do we do believe in the Eucharist? He said, you don't. He said, I've been at a Catholic Mass at a funeral or some other things like that at a wedding. And I've seen how the Catholics behave. If they really believed that this is their God, that he is present there, body, blood, soul, and divinity, as he's in heaven, they would fall on their knees in adoration. They drop to their knees in adoration. But when I come into the Catholic Church, I see them moving around. And at the time of consecration, where you say he's there present, they behave as if they are at some other thing. But we are in the presence of God. You know, when I do Eucharistic adoration for children, I I, I have different ways to get them to be attentive to the Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. And I might say to them, you might ask them a question, who is the most important person in the world? I'd name some famous person in the world. Maybe they might name the president president of a country or maybe the prime minister of uh, Australia, but nobody knows who that is. He keeps changing so often. (laughs) I I think I heard who it was yesterday, but maybe today is Sorry for me. Sorry for the joke. <laughs> but the, maybe a sports star, a famous sports star, if they were, and the children, I said to him, if they were to walk in that door there, you would go, oh, look, you name some famous person for me. Justin Bieber. <laughs> 
So if Justin Bieber was to walk in that door, <laughs> Justin Bieber were to walk in that door, all the teenagers would fall down before him. <laughs> Justin Bieber, Justin Bieber, Justin. I love you, I love you. <laughs> a fan of Justin Bieber. <laughs> but the children get the point. People, they idolize pop stars and movie stars. They actually adore them. I was once at a concert uh, of uh, Bruce Springsteen. Many years ago, and I saw there how the people, you know, they practically adore these people. They're not God. And then when people come to Holy Mass, like the Mormon said, there are Holy Mass in the Catholic Church. They behave not according to what they say they believe. So I say that so that we and you and I can fall in love with our Lord Jesus truly present in the Eucharist that we may have that sense of awe and reverence and wonder and awe at what God is doing in that tiny, what looks like a piece of bread, under the form of a piece of bread, our God is present. And only God who is omnipotent, all-powerful, and at the same time, infinite love, when you put omnipotence together with infinite love, the result is the, the Eucharist, this tiny host, because his infinite power is driven by his infinite love. His infinite love pushes his infinite power to go this far in manifesting his love for us. Not only that we can look at him, but that we can, be cons we can consume him, take him into our body and dwell it in us, that we can be his tabernacle, that he's radiating in his love, you know, like Father said this morning at the homily, the uh, Buddha, the uh, king of Belgium, used to come to be burned by the Eucharist, by adoring it. But it's not only that, it's to receive him within us, to be burned inside by him, this, the, flame of, the flame of fire, to be set ablaze with his love, he is within us. So how can we not be on fire? How can we not fall in love? How can something not be different in our lives? How can our attitudes in the church as we're waiting for Jesus, how can it not be in preparation? And, uh, you know, like the Mormon, the Mormon taught us, he's teaching us a lesson. If he was to believe what we believe, he would fall down in adoration. So we ask for the grace today, for the grace to believe. This grace is really needed at this time to really believe ourselves that he is not only talking about other people, that I have to ask the grace, that I believe every day deeper and deeper and be in a greater awe and wonder at the presence of Jesus. When Jesus in chapter 6 of the Gospel told them to eat his flesh and drink his blood, he didn't say, I ask you to understand what I say. You won't understand this, no. But what he did say to us, I ask you to believe I ask you to believe this. That's the only thing that Jesus asks us. We believe it's a mystery. Because it's a mystery, it's difficult. You know, you don't, you don't understand with your head. He's not asking us to be at that level, facing the Eucharist. This doesn't help us with our head thinking how it is there. But with our heart, we can approach him with our love, touched by his love, We'll understand more by our love than with our mind when approaching the Eucharist. There was a blessed Alexandrina de Costa. She was a, a Portuguese saint who lived for 13 years on the Eucharist alone. With no bread, so no food, no water, no sleep for 13 long years. She used to receive the Eucharist every day from the priest. That was her only food. 
and the doctors heard about it, the people heard about it. They took her to the hospital, the doctors to examine her, to see how she was living on the Eucharist alone. And she spent two months in the hospital. They didn't believe her. They watched her day and night. They looked under the sheets and everything to see whether there was some bread or something. And they found no proof. She lost no weight at all. And Jesus said to her, You are living on the Eucharist alone because I want to prove to the world the power of the Eucharist and the power of my life in souls. You know when you receive the Eucharist, you've got the power of God within you. And, you know, it's, it's so beautiful for me when I do Eucharistic adoration with children. A couple of years ago, I went to America and to Northern Ireland. I had little groups of children for 10 days, 60 or maybe 100, uh, one after another, bringing them to Jesus. Such a great joy it was. And the children, they adhere so easily to the mystery. They touch the mystery because they're not at the level of their intelligence. They're at the level of their heart. They believe so easily. It was such a joy for me to see. One day they had to leave, you know, one wave after another of children. I went through 7,000 children in 10, 10 days adoration. And it was beautiful to see sometimes from the door that I'd have to get them to leave. And it's difficult to get them to leave after 45 minutes with Jesus because they used to fall in love with Jesus in the Eucharist. And I'd have to get the adults to actually force them to go away because there was another crowd coming in and I was to say to them, would, would you like to stay here with Jesus now or do you want to go back to school? <laughs> well, the answer should be easy enough anyway. But we want to stay with Jesus. And then from the door, sometimes they turn back to Jesus and look at the Blessed Sacrament. Say, I love you, Jesus. And they head back to school. And, uh, and they'll be singing all the way back into the classroom. Oh, Sacrament Most Holy, oh, Sacrament Divine. Singing all the way back. And they used to be transfixed by their love of Jesus in the Eucharist. So we as adults, we want to have this same childlike love and sense of the true presence of Jesus. We need to be children before him in the Eucharist. Do you remember Jesus said, uh, uh, you must become like little children in order to enter the kingdom of God. So especially when it's a question of the Eucharist. What can you see? What do you see? You see nothing extraordinary. No manifestation of God's power. No extraordinary manifestation. You see a tiny little host. That's all you see. And there you must fall in love with him. So, how should we think of the Eucharist? First of all, it's a sacrifice. The victory of Calvary is not just a reenactment. You are really present. As the Catechism says, it's an unbloody sacrifice. So sometimes theologians speak about God collapsing time. It's our way of speaking. But what happened 2,000 years ago at Calvary? Uh, you were not there then, were you? Not even my, uh, myself. I wasn't there either. 2,000 years ago at Calvary, where Jesus died in his victory of love, conquering sin and evil and death. The only thing that remained at Calvary was love. And it's love who rises from the dead. So we are at Mass. We are present at Calvary. Every time we come to Holy Mass, we are there at Calvary with Mary and St. John and the few holy, few holy women. When Jesus looks from the cross, who does he see? He sees his mother. He sees St. John. And he sees us. Because our divine law looks forward in time to the end of the ages and sees all the people who will truly love him in the blessed sacrament and he sees also all those who will receive him in sacrilegious communion who will wound his heart by their lack of love and he sees you and I, he sees our love one time he said to Saint Faustina he said your sincere love, humble love for me is the drop of Consolation in the ocean of bitterness that I have to endure 
by ungrateful men that they receive me in unbelief, with coldness, and with indifference. So our Lord Jesus has a heart. He's got a human heart which loves us. He's got a heart which is a heart of infinite love. So what we do, what we say, how we act, affects Jesus' love. When you love someone very much, you're affected by the way they act. So his victory of love uh, won our salvation. And that's the first thing. And therefore, when we go to Mass, we are not going to be entertained. We're not going there to be entertained. Sometimes, you know, I just have to say the difference between a Catholic Mass and a communion service in a Protestant church. First, I have to say that, you know, at the Last Supper, Jesus gave us two sacraments. The sacrament of the Eucharist, when Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body. Was Jesus telling the truth? Yes. When he said, this is the chalice of my blood. What Jesus says is true. Jesus doesn't try to deceive us. He acts by his creative power to change the substance of one thing into the substance of another. The substance of bread into the substance, that's what it really is. The substance, if you did a bit of philosophy, we understand the substance to be the, the koinai, is a, the Greek for what the whatness of something, what it really is. It's no longer bread, it's Jesus himself. Though keeping the accidents, the exterior appearances, it still looks like bread, still weighs the same, same color and everything. But it is him. So, Jesus also gives another sacrament at the Last Supper. What was the other sacrament? Holy Orders. Holy Orders. So that at Holy Mass, you know, he ordained the first priests, bishops and priests, St. Peter and St. John, etc. And these bishops, they ordained more bishops and priests down to the priest here in the Catholic Church. There is an unbroken link of ordination from the Last Supper to the priest here, to the priest of Mass today here, uh, in the Catholic Church. In the other churches, in the Protestant churches, there is no, there is no unbroken link. So, when the Catholic priest takes the bread in his hands and he says, this is my body, it is not the body of the priest. Thank God I don't want you to devour me. <laughs> it won't do you any good whatsoever. You'll be just as bad as I am then. It is not my body because I'm ordained and ordained because of the sacrament of ordination. When the priest takes the initiative, I'll make a comparison. Okay, it's a bizarre, it's not bizarre. Okay, you know, at uh, the creation of life, God creates the soul. The man and the woman take an initiative to come together, but God creates the being. He acts according to their initiative. He creates the soul. In the Eucharist, the priest takes the initiative to celebrate Mass. And when the priest, I make that comparison so you understand, when the priest says the word, he takes the initi initiative to say, this is my body, Jesus takes over. He borrows, if you like, the body and the lips and the words, everything that the priest is. If you could really see what happens then, you wouldn't see the priest any longer, you'd see Christ. It's, it's our Lord himself saying the words, but the priest has taken the initiative. This is my body. The very same words as he said at the Last Supper. So it is the body and blood of Jesus. So he gave us two sacraments at the Last Supper. Sacrament of the Eucharist and of ordination. So the second thing is that the Eucharist is communion with Jesus. 
What would you say if you could personally meet Jesus? If Jesus was to walk in the door there, not just in Bieber, but if Jesus was actually to walk in that door, how would you react? How would you be? You'd say, what an awesome privilege. How blessed I am. Today, I met Jesus. You might think sometimes how great it was for the disciples to speak to Jesus every day, to meet him every day. We've got a greater privilege than they have. We receive him in a far more intimate way in the Eucharist. And if you have faith, miracles can happen at Mass. When I was leaving London, I spent two years in London, the day I was leaving, I met a woman going out the door of the church, and she said to me, thank you for healing my husband. Her husband had been suffering for many years with deep depression and suicidal tendencies. And she told me that shortly after I came there, which was two years almost before that, that during the Holy Mass, he was suddenly healed of all his depression and his suicidal tendencies. And for two years, he'd been totally free of this. I know of a man who, an English man, an Anglican, who fell off a horse and his back was twisted. And he was in severe, severe agony for three or four years. And he, he went to Ireland with his wife to a place called the House of Prayer. This is a house of prayer, a very special place where Mass is celebrated. And during the Holy Mass, he was healed of his crippling uh, paralysis, of his pain. He did be carried to Mass on a stretcher. At the end of Mass, he walked away. Do you believe in miracles like that? If you have faith, you see these things. Miracles are happening. Why not? Why wouldn't they happening? Why wouldn't they happen? You know, the woman in the gospel who had the hemorrhage for 12 years, she but touched the, the tassel of his cloak and she was healed. Why? She touched him. The other people didn't touch him. She touched him in her faith. Uh, the, by the way, the Anglican man that came, he didn't receive Holy Communion, but he was healed during the Mass. He became Catholic after. So you don't only touch the hem of his cloak. Far more than that, you receive him within you. If you have faith, many things will happen. Miracles can happen. In my own country, Ireland, it used to be a place of faith. There was uh, a great famine there 150 years ago. Before the famine, there was about 9 million people. After the famine, there was 3.5 million people. Um, the people in Ireland at that time had an extraordinary love for the Eucharist and for a Blessed Lady. One woman, uh, her husband had died of hunger. Her children died of hunger. There was a mass being celebrated about a kilometer away. She was dying of hunger. She couldn't walk to mass, but she crawled on her hands and knees to mass. And she died in the church. How do you think that Jesus would receive her when she crossed over? Isn't that the kind of faith we need in the Eucharist? Would we crawl on our hands and knees to get to Holy Mass? If we really believe, you know, today people have cars, sadly, and the churches are empty. I was speaking to a man from China, a Chinese priest, about 30 years ago. And he was telling me in that place in China, uh, it was forbidden to even speak about God, never, leave, never mind to have a church or celebrate Mass. But he celebrated Mass clandestinely, in secret, 
And it got out by word of mouth that he celebrated Mass. And people walked there, young and old, over hills and valleys, a hundred kilometers to get to Holy Mass. What faith? Do we have that kind of faith? Do we have that love for Jesus in the Eucharist? I hope we do. Would we be ready to give our lives? Would we be ready to die? The people in Ireland died for the Eucharist. It was against the law to be Catholic during the penal times. And priests were shot on sight. People died to protect their priests. There's a book called Ireland's Loyalty to the Mass, written in 1930 by a Capuchin priest. And it gives so many beautiful, extraordinary stories of the martyrdom of the people. You know, Ireland was call, is called the country of martyrdom. They died for the Eucharist. One weekend, Cromwell and his army came into a town called Drogheda. I don't know how many people lived there, but in the weekend, he killed every man, woman, and child because they're Catholic, because they wanted to go to Mass. Would you and I be ready to die for Jesus? Would it be worth it? Imagine that woman who died in the church, crawling on her hands and knees to get to Holy Mass. What a welcome she would have at the gates of heaven. St. Catherine of Siena said, If my priests and bishops do not become holy, I will make them holy through their enemies. Is that that's what's happening today, is it not? The persecution is the per purification. And don't despair in the church today. Do not despair. This is a, a purification which is absolutely necessary. And sometimes the good are suffering. Sometimes the good, and maybe in our own country here, can be put in jail who are innocent. So there's a suffering happening. And those who are guilty of terrible crimes have to be, the church has to be purified of them. The church has to be made pure, beautiful and holy again. And it's happening through the enemies of the church. Not just the enemies of communism, but the media and all that's going on today. To be Catholic is, uh, is number one enemy as regards the media. So Jesus tried to prepare the people for the Eucharist. Jesus, in his three years apostolic life, he healed the blind, the deaf, the paralyzed. He brought people back from the dead. Jesus fed 5,000 people, not counting 5,000 men, not counting the women and children, with five loaves and two fish. And Jesus walked on the water. These miracles were a preparation, preparing the hearts of his followers. These 5,000 or thousands of people, they were not his enemies. They were his followers. He was gathering people. It's like a rolling uh, snowball. It was gathering more and more and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And Jesus was preparing them for one act of faith. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have life in you. In chapter 6 of the Gospel of St. John, he repeats a number of times. He says to them, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. So they said, these are his followers. They said, this is nonsense. This man is crazy. This is how we cannot listen to this. How can we eat his flesh and drink his blood? So one by one they walk away and leave Jesus with 12 men. Isn't that sad? All those followers, when he wants to prepare their hearts for the gift of himself in the Eucharist, they all walk away. And the only thing he asked them was to believe. He didn't ask them to understand. What I ask you is to believe. It was a scandal for them that he should say to them, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And you know, we should keep something of that scandal. Have we lost the sense of the scandal? What it cost Jesus to give us the Eucharist. There should be a scandal in this for us. 
something of a scandal in a good sense that we understand the price he paid to give us himself in the Eucharist. He said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the world. Jesus will never leave us. And he never leaves us. He's present in the Eucharist in every Catholic church in the world. He's there so that he can uh, love us, that he can be close to us, that he can set our hearts on fire, that he can be with us and sanctify us, sanctify the area, sanctify the city, and sanctify the country. Now, just a quick word about uh, Eucharistic miracles. Uh, you know the Eucharistic miracle in Buenos Aires in 1996? Have you heard of it? So there was, uh, after Mass, there was a sacred host found discarded at the door of the church in the mud. So the priest took the host and put it in uh, a glass jar of water, that's what you do, uh, and put it in the tabernacle so that it will dissolve. Uh, after a week or so, it will dissolve and the Lord is no longer truly present. So he put it in the tabernacle, and after four days, he took it out, and there was what seemed like blood in it, and human flesh. And he put it back in the tabernacle for another 11 days, and it would grow more. <laughs> and there, put it back in the tabernacle for about four years. <laughs> and it had grown more and more. So they brought it to a, a scientist, who didn't know where it came from, to have it examined. There's a in New York, Dr. Rugby uh, was a New York heart specialist and a forensic pathologist. And he knew, knew nothing about where it came from, a little sample of the host. And this is what he said. This is heart muscle from the left ventricle wall of the heart, not too far from Valburger area. He went on to say that it was part of the muscle of the heart heart muscle, that gives the heart its beat and the body its life. The person who was alive was alive at the, at the moment of the sample was taken. And that the person had suffered severe head, sorry, severe heart injury, a comprising of the blood supply to the heart, a matter of a few days beforehand. He said he had seen heart injury like that in cases where a person had been severely beaten around the chest. That's the result of the scientist when a little sample of this host was taken. In Lanciano, in the 8th century, now today, with their modern technology, there was a Eucharistic miracle there in the 8th century, which still is there present. So a few years ago, they took a little sample, had it examined, and they found the same result is here. And an independent scientist who knew not where either one came from was given a sample of both and examined them. And he was fit to say that the two samples in the 8th century from Lanciano and 1996 in Buenos Aires come from the same person. And there are other Eucharistic miracles, some in Poland and many other places, which they say the same thing. So. Uh, Jesus, when he was leaving this world, <coughs> one of the things he said was, I thirst. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he was thirsty for water, it's true. But there's a deeper meaning. Jesus was thirsty for what? Jesus was thirsty for L-O-V. For love. Jesus died of a thirst of love. Whose love? Your love and my love. He died of a thirst of love. 
That's what he died of. And in the Eucharist, he is present in his thirst of love. And I say, you know, some people say to me sometimes that they go to Mass, they get nothing out of it, they don't go anymore. They say it's boring. Was the cross boring? If you were at the cross, would you say it's boring? You're not going to say that. So, if you don't go to Mass, I tell people that you know, and I say, you know, you weren't there at Calvary 2,000 years ago. So that's why he's given us the Eucharist, so that you can be present. And if you don't go to Mass, Jesus is thirsting for you. He's dying of thirst for you. Would you give Jesus a drink of water? Remember, when you go to Mass, go there thinking, knowing that you can go there to give Jesus a drink. If you were at the cross 2,000 years ago, wouldn't you have given him a drink if you could? Well, you weren't there, but you're at Holy Mass. So think the minute you walk in the door of the church, Jesus, I want to give you a drink, not of water. He doesn't need that. Of you, of your love. He died for you in a thirst for you. So please give him a drink. I want to tell you a quick story about an extraordinary miracle, a tsunami that happened in 1906 in Tomalco, Colombia, a little island uh, where there was an earthquake in the ocean which gave rise to a huge tsunami. And the people of the church, of the place, they went to the priest and begged him to take the Blessed Sacrament and go down to the beach where the tsunami was coming in. So the priest ran to the church, took the Blessed Sacrament, put in the monstrance, and went down in procession to the beach with the people following him. He was Father Gerard Lorando. This huge wall of water came in. He was standing in the sand. This enormous wall of water came in and came to his feet and stopped and receded, went back out. That was in 1906. You don't hear about that on the news on the TV. They don't tell you. They're not interested. They've got a different agenda. But the power of the Eucharist, if you have faith, that priest and the people had faith. So it's no wonder because he is God. He created the world. So he can do these things if we have faith. There's a book, In Seno Jesu. Some of you know about this book. Hands up who read this book. I see some seminarians, thank God. <laughs> because I recommended it last year to you. <laughs> and in this book, uh, it's a, there's a Benedictine monk. Uh, the, what's in the book is the communications of Jesus to him when he's in Eucharistic adoration. And it's put together in this book, in Senor Jesus, that means on the heart of Jesus. And he says many things to him, but one thing he said, I want to speak to the faith, I want you to speak to the faithful of the Holy Mass, as a true sacrifice. They have forgotten this. No one thinks anymore to tell them that the action of the Eucharist renews my sacrifice upon the cross and that I am present upon the altar as upon the cross, as both priest and victim. It is the whole of my sacrifice of love that unfolds before their eyes. You must tell them that. So please tell them that. So, I'll just say one more thing about the Eucharist. 
that when we receive our Lord Jesus, um, there it's like a small voice within us calling us to live fraternal charity, to somehow in our life become victim of love for other people. We receive Jesus, who is the Lamb of God offered in sacrifice for us. We receive him within us, and he is calling us to give our lives for our brothers and sisters, to offer our life for them. So when we see somebody, you know, living a bad life, we don't uh, spend our time complaining about them, but we offer our lives to God for them. Because Jesus is, we are united with him. So we hear this voice. It's a very gentle voice. It's not like the voices of the world. It's so gentle. And uh, so he's calling us, yes, to be with him, together with him, calling our brothers and sisters back to a life of faith and love, faith, hope, and charity. In, uh, Jesus began his apostolic life at Cana, the wedding at Cana. And the book of Revelation ends with a wedding feast in heaven. In chapter 21, I will read for you. This is what it will be like. And I saw this at the end of time. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And the sea is no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. In fact, it's not the passage. Oh, this is the passage. <laughs> and there came one of the seven angels who had the bowls full of the seven... Come I, will, come, I will show you the bride, the spouse of the Lamb. So, the book of Apocalypse, it's a very beautiful book, but it ends with the wedding feast in heaven. Our, whose wedding feast? By the way, you're all going to get married, sisters as well, married to Christ. You're already married to Christ. Jesus begins his apostolic life at the wedding at Cana in the Gospel of St. John, indicating to us what our end will be. In heaven, there will be something like a wedding in heaven where our soul will be united to God for all eternity in a union with God, so extraordinary. And this, we are in preparation for this union, this wedding feast in heaven. Each time we receive the Eucharist, we receive the wedding banquet within us. Uh, preparation for the banquet is the banquet receiving the Lamb of God we're dwelling within the heart of the Father. Jesus dwells in the bosom of the Father for all eternity. So we, when we receive the Eucharist, we are dwelling with Jesus in the bosom of the Father. We are living the same mystery as Jesus lives with the Father for all eternity. And just lastly, I just say, mention two saints that God has raised up this last number of years to help us to see that the Eucharist is truly a sacrifice. One is St. Padre Pio. You know about St. Padre Pio? Yeah. He's on the wall in, down there. Padre Pio, uh, during Holy Mass, somebody once said to him, you know, he had the wounds of our Lord. They used to bleed uh, every day for 50 years. And somebody once said to Padre Pio, how are you able to stand at the altar the pains in your feet. And Padre Pio said at the altar, I am not standing, I am hanging on the cross with Jesus. So Padre Pio is given to us to help us to know that Holy Mass is not a place we go for entertainment. It's a place we go to be fed on love, to meet the thirst of Jesus. Jesus given to us. 
It's a sacrifice, the same sacrifice at Calvary. He is one saint given to us. There's another saint given to us. I don't know if you know Saint Charbel. Who knows Saint Charbel? Put up your hand. He's a very, very extraordinary saint. In fact, uh, his feast day used to be the 24th of December. Now it's in a change. It's uh, July, I think. That's the day I received my habit, the 24th of December. The feast is in Charbel. So I know him. I like, I like him a lot. But <laughs> Saint Charbel, he lived the last 25 years of his life as a hermit. He got permission from his superior to live as a hermit. And... Uh, after he died, the only one who used to meet him was his superior from time to time would go to visit him. So when he died, uh, there was all kinds of strange manifestations coming from his tomb, all kinds of lights, and so they opened the tomb, and they'd see light coming from his coffin, and they'd open the coffin, and they'd find the coffin half full of liquid, of an oil, some strange oil, and used to empty it every now and again, and the oil would be more quantity than would have been in the body. For years and years, and Saint Charbel remained incorrupt for 150 years until he was beatified. So somebody once asked uh, his superior, why are all these strange things happening at the tomb of uh, Saint Charbel? And by the way, uh, you know, there was no photograph when he was canonized. There was no image of St. Charbel to hang up in Rome. So where the image came from was, at the tomb of St. Charbel, there's a, somebody was taking a photograph of another person beside his headstone. And when the photograph was developed, there was two people instead of one. There was a monk, an old monk with his head down like that with a beard. And uh, so the old monks that had known St. Charbel they said, whoa, look, that's St. Chapelle. That's St. Chapelle. And that's the image that was used in Rome for his canonization. It's kind of extraordinary, isn't it? But somebody asked his superior, why are all these strange manifestations, the strange manifestations of uh, happening at the tomb of St. Padre St. Chapelle? And his superior said, the reason is that St. Charbel lived the last 25, of his, 25 years of his life, every single day, the first half of the day, in preparation for celebrating Holy Mass, and the second half of the day in thanksgiving. That's what he did, nothing else, for 25 years, the Holy Eucharist. So our Lord gives us these two saints, I think, to help us to see what Holy Mass is. Just lastly, I, there was a... A little saint so, uh, called Nelly of Holy God. Maybe you never heard of her. But she died at the age of four. And uh, the last year of her life, she, she was taken care of by the, the sisters in the convent because her mother had died and her father was away in the army. And uh, she, used to, she was too young to receive the Eucharist. When the sisters would be at Holy Mass, she used to beg them to come back into her, she was, her body was crippled. She had a severe problem with her spine. She was crippled up and in great suffering. And she used to beg the sisters, when you receive Jesus in Holy Mass in the Eucharist, please come back to me and kiss me on the lips so that I can taste Jesus. And uh, she was begging them to be given permission to receive Holy Communion. So they went to the bishop and they asked, uh, the bishop, this child, she's begging, she's four years old, she's begging for the Eucharist, she's longing for the Eucharist. What will we do? So the bishop wrote to the Pope, Pope Pius X, I think. At that time, Pope Pius X, he'd been praying to know, you know, because at that time, you could only receive communion, maybe at feast days, you know, people didn't receive communion every day. So the Pope had been praying to know what he, what he was going to do. Should he permit people and children to receive Holy Communion much younger? So when the bishop wrote to the Pope, asking for permission to this child to receive Holy Communion, Pope Pius X said, this is the sign that I've been asking for from God. And Pope Pius X gave permission to her to receive Holy Communion. 
she lived for about uh, three or four months afterwards and they brought her down to the chapel on a little wheelchair, gave her Holy Communion, wheeled her back to the room and then she asked to be left alone. She spent the whole day, this four-year-old, in thanksgiving to Holy God. She didn't want anybody with her. She had received our Lord within her. That's called, she's called Little Nelly of Holy God. You can... Oh, you don't have Google, so you can't Google her. <laughs> One day. So I just uh, end, really. So we ask all the saints of the Eucharist to help us to go deeper in our love for Jesus, to discover his thirst for us. Uh, and this, the last thing I'll say to you is this, because uh, I set my clock for an hour, it's not an hour yet, it's almost. Our Blessed Lady, our Mother Mary, after Jesus went up to heaven, ascended into heaven, Mary received the Eucharist from St. John, and every time that she received the Eucharist, he created in her a deeper thirst, a desire and a love and a longing to be united with our son Jesus in heaven. And every Eucharist that she received created this desire. It grew deeper and deeper and deeper. And in the end of our life, the, the pilgrimage of Mary on earth, this desire, this longing for God, being fed with the Eucharist, became so intense that it became a living martyrdom of desire. She wanted so much to be with her son united with her son, it became a true living martyrdom, a martyrdom of desire. So we ask Mary, our mother, to help us to receive the thirst of Jesus in the Eucharist. We're being fed by his thirst, that he will create in us a thirst, a desire, a longing, and a love for him, so that we too, when we live, end our journey on earth, that we will live like our Blessed Lady, that we will leave this earth in the desire for God, this desire being fed each time that we receive Jesus in the Eucharist. So I say, Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Our Lady of the Eucharist. That was Father Anthony Mary Pendergast with The Mystery of the Eucharist. This talk was recorded at the Immaculata Mission School 2019 at the Glennie School in Toowoomba, Queensland. To hear more talks from Immaculata Mission Schools from years gone by and to hear other great Catholic talks, interviews and shows, head over to cradio.org.au.